0: and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Joe Zhu, CEO of Quidnet Energy. Quidnet operates at the nexus of energy and water to enable predictable delivery of power from intermittent sources and large scale deployment of renewable energy. Their breakthrough energy technology uses existing natural resources to store renewable energy over long durations and in large quantities. This drives down large-scale electric grid storage costs to half that of traditional pumped hydro and enables wide-scale deployment of renewable energy across the power grid. QuidNet is backed by leading investors, including Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Evoke Innovations, Trafigura, and Prime Coalition. QuidNet also partnered with multiple government agencies for advanced energy technologies, such as U.S. Department of Energy and NYSERDA. I was excited for this one because Joe is an OG in climate tech. He's been at it for years. QuidNet has been making meaningful progress. And I couldn't wait to get his perspective on how to bring this deep tech innovation to market, where the gaps are in the capital stack, what some of the biggest challenges and surprises have been on the journey so far. And also, it's fascinating to talk to Joe about the new wave of climate tech innovation that's been starting as more of Silicon Valley awakens to the climate emergency and wants to find things to build in this area. At any rate, it's a great discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. Joe, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm very excited to talk to you.
0: Well, I can't believe it's taken this long because I've been at this almost three years, and I feel like QuidNet popped on my radar very early on. I don't even remember how, but yeah, we're just meeting and talking for the first time today, no prep call or anything. So who knows where this discussion is going (laughs) to go? Yeah.
1: You know, I think the first time you heard QuidNet was also probably the first time I heard you and that was on Matthew Norton's episode way back when.
0: Yeah. And I feel like, I don't remember the exact number, but I feel like he might've been like single digits, like very, very very early. Yeah. Yeah cuz I'm in Boston and Primes in Cambridge and yeah I got introduced to the prime team early and that's a gosh I mean that is I think when I came in I was worried about kind of just sticking with the bits and so I had this bug in my ear of like you know deep tech and so I which I had no experience with and so I tried to get closer to you know the the primes and you know, fusion and fission and carbon removal and geoengineering. And now I think my perspective is a lot more well-rounded three years in, but that is, that is where I started, which was, that was pretty intimidating. I won't lie to you.
1: Yeah, that must have been a long time. And Prime has really started with that thesis, right? Of finding a lot of these things that are hard, literally and figuratively. And I think we were their first investment and they were our first investor. And to so to really help the company get off the ground and get, some data to demonstrate that something like what we're talking about can be done.
0: Well, what are we talking about? What's Quinnet Energy?
1: So Quinnet Energy is a energy source company that's mobilizing the oil and gas supply chain to bring pumped hydro storage underground, and doing that so that electricity is not only renewable but also reliable. The way that this system works is if you look at you know how. of the world's source energy is actually not batteries. It's it's pumping water up these big mountains. And when you do it that way, you need the mountains. These are mega projects that are heavily concentrated that take decades to to get ready for construction. And so you you have this phenomenal capability for storing electricity that's been proven over 100 years, but just not available to vast parts of the population. And so what Quinnet does, is instead of pumping water up a hill, we pump water down into the ground and store energy as pressurized water in the subsurface. And when you do that, you bring that same capability to a lot more of the population and a lot more of the power grids that are undergoing transition.
0: And how did all this come about? What's the QuidNet energy origin story? And either after or, or in parallel, it would be great to learn about your journey as well.
1: Yeah. You know what? I'll just do a quick bit on myself because it really, I've intersected QuidNet at a point where there's actually a separate origin story for QuidNet where I happened to kind of intersect with the founders there at a really interesting time in both the QuidNet's life cycle as well as where I was in life. So I, I grew up in China. My parents and I moved to Canada during kind of the middle of the oil sands boom. This is 1999. Alberta, oil sands. They were technical immigrants. They work in the oil and gas. They still work in the oil and gas industry. I grew up in the oil and gas industry. I went to Exxon as a chemical engineer. That's my first job. And then shortly after joining, I just became really intrigued by what was happening in the power space. So I left. I did a bit of a walkabout professionally. I went to consulting. I went to business school. And then halfway through business school, I dropped out to go join this battery storage company in the Bay Area. So at that time, and I think it's still the case today, I learned that, look, wind is going to get cheaper, solar is going to get cheaper, but one thing that hasn't been figured out is battery storage. And so I went, I left school, I spent a year leading the business development team at the startup looking at how this market would form all over the world. That company was acquired in 2016 by a French power company called Engie. And after the acquisition happened, I had a chance to reflect and really kind of sit back and look at the big picture of what's happening in power space. And there's a couple of realizations that kind of led me to leave that space and look for something else. And essentially, the realizations more or less look like, you know, for the past 100 years, electricity has been like a just-in-time delivery system, more or less. You turn your switch on and electricity is there as it's generated, it's being consumed. And that system has worked largely because... There is just an unimaginable amount of storage that happens upstream of the electricity valley chain in the form of gas in caverns, gas in pipelines, coal piles, and nuclear fuel rods. We don't think much about that, but the reason why the electricity grid is able to run reliably is because of just an incredible amount of storage upstream of the valley chain, something like hundreds of terawatt hours worth of storage today that's just in the U.S. And for us to shift that storage into the electricity segment of the value chain, I did not see kind of lithium-ion batteries as a cost-effective and practical way of doing it. I think it's great for passenger vehicles. And I'm very excited about what's happening there, but for it to be the solution for storage and power grid, I think we need things a lot cheaper and can be built for low cost and much longer durations. And so for that reason, I left right around my time through that journey a gentleman by the name of Howard Schmidt was kind of going through his own his own journey as well. So he's somebody who grew up in Texas in the oil fields. His dad was running around the oil fields. He spent his life in a combination of research, applied research, technical institutions. Most recently, he worked at the Advanced Research Center for Saudi Aramco, looking at how to pull the last drops of oil out of their reservoirs. And he kind an of aha moment for him. So he was the inventor of technology, and the aha moment for him was Kind of a one person's trash, another person's treasure kind of moment where for the past hundred years as well, the oil and gas industry has been dealing with water, pressurized water in the subsurface is not a new thing. It's never been a monetizable thing, but it's not a new thing in the oil and gas industry. And he's observed that. And so he realized that if I could tune those mechanisms for storing water and pressure, I can essentially take the mountain away from pumped hydra and replicate pump hydro in parts of the country, again, that don't have mountains. And so he started the business. He intersected with Matthew. Matthew and Prime funded the business through a few kind of initial field tests. And then where our paths all merged together was in 2017, where I met Howard, brokered by Matthew and another founder of the company. And after kind of a six-month courtship, we started working together. And I have been with the company, and, and Howard has been with the company ever since.
0: So what were you doing at the time? Were you still reflecting?
1: Yeah, I was, I was still reflecting. I was still reflecting. I was looking around for what to do with my life, but also what to do in terms of what are some of the technologies that can fit that cost thesis for storing on the grid, much cheaper, much longer. Grid. So you,
0: you said, if I'm hearing right, your realization was that storage was fundamentally important and that lithium ion wasn't going to get us where we needed to go, that there might be some use cases like EVs, where it will be good enough, but in some fundamental ones, it will not. And if I'm hearing right, and correct me if I'm wrong, you set out on an expedition to understand what a better answer would be for long duration storage to make renewables more reliable.
1: That's right. And as part of that exploration, that's when I met Howard. That's when I met Quidnet and got to know Howard. Matthew was already on the board. And after six month diligence that I did personally with Howard on the company just some really exciting insights on what the technology could be for quidnet. and that's led us to form or let me to join the company and run it since
0: so storage is one of these areas where i mean it comes up again and again as a big fundamental lever for like we said making renewables more reliable there's factions that talk about how lithium-ion will actually take us much further than than some think there's factions that say that Flow batteries might be some portion of the answer. As someone who built a fitness app company for the last eight or nine years before getting into learning about climate change a few years ago, my eyes still glaze over when we talk about this stuff. It's very intimidating. It's hard to understand the trade offs. It's hard to understand how to assess these different technologies. So, before we get too far down the path of QuidNet, can you walk me and listeners through your assessment process? What are the key buckets in the landscape as you see it? And then, just high level, what are some of the trade-offs or pros and cons? And, and how did you end up getting to the fact that QuidNet was where you wanted to anchor and spend the next phase of your career?
1: I think that when you look at the power markets, what's nice about it is that it is a pretty, there aren't too many qualitative factors. You can typically quantify what it takes to win. So when you take the energy storage landscape, and you can essentially take each of those technologies and distill it down to a set of metrics. And from those metrics, generally, the community has a pretty good understanding of what are the metrics that are most important. What I found to be most important, number one, overwhelmingly, is CapEx. Number two is asset life. And then you get some distant second, thirds. or actually distant third, distant fourth, round-trip efficiency, OPEX does matter round efficiency doesn't matter too, too much, but once you start going below 50%, then things start to add up a bit. OpEx doesn't matter so long as you're within reason relative to a lot of the other technologies in terms of maintenance costs and service costs. So CapEx was a big deal. It is the biggest deal, in my opinion, when I started looking at the space and then after that second deal. So that is what is competitive relative to kind of what the space is looking for. And I think there is then another vector which is what does it take to get things to scale? And that vector is you know things comprised of what is the underlying scientific risk in that journey? What is the total supply chain investments that you need to do to get to scale? And what are the things that you need to do to scale up? What is the scale up risk as well as you go down that, that journey? So, so for me, when I looked at the space, it's what is the potential of a given technology in terms of its CAPEX, its longevity, its OPEX, RTE, and so on. And then what's the journey? Is this something that everything's, you know, supply chain is already there for? Or is this something where if you make, if it works, it also involves you back integrating into the supply chain because there's some rare earth metals supply chain that you need to scale up for that to provide, you know, the reaction components that you need. To do the technology. And so that's really the main kind of two main levers or two main dimensions that I looked at during the search. And you can kind of place the world of, of technologies on there. And I think you get some pretty wide things along that spectrum. You get things like us, a lot of the mechanical storage systems, the thermal storage systems, I think that fits in the category of the supply chain is fairly readily available and can deploy large scales. And that's when you kind of just look at the relative cost metrics across those technologies. And then there are ones that have a really different journey ahead of them. New electrochemistries is one of those. And that both in solid form and liquid form. On that end of the spectrum, I think it is a different level of a lift that's needed to get those technologies to market, different supply chain level of investments that's necessary. That's not trivial to be able to deploy at scale. So I took a look at that entire set across those dimensions, and that's what, when Quinnet came, I saw a really attractive cost profile, really attractive journey to get there. The journey to get there wasn't necessarily reinvent a new supply chain or a new chemistry, it was just, okay, we'll take a one-megawatt pump, and you go and set that one-megawatt pump, go buy a three-megawatt pump. That was a scale-up journey that would be needed to scale the cost down for these systems, and that I felt like was something that was very doable, and was then a bet that I was really excited to make. The entire supply chain was already there. The cost profile that could get to extremely attractive, right? So the equivalent of the battery tray for our system is actually building out a water pond. And that's very well known in terms of how that is done. And you can characterize and quantify exactly what that's going to cost. And the bulk of the system for us is actually almost inverted relative to batteries. We don't bulk. the, The majority of our cost is not in the battery trays, so to speak. The majority of our cost is in what it takes to drill the wells, install the surface facility, and all those things. Whether you have one-hour storage or 10-hour storage or even more hours of storage, it's going to be the same cost. And so that was also a very compelling component of the analysis for us.
0: And set the stage for me and for our listeners in terms of when you joined QuidNet, what did the company look like at the time? And what did the market look like at the time? And then we can kind of get into some of the twists and turns over the last few years.
1: Yeah. Okay. So 2017, there was actually no full-time employees at that time. So it was two part-time founders, both had other things that they were working on, worked together with Prime and as Clean as you Ventures in Boston to fund some field tests to show that this can work. And that was, that was essentially it. At that point, that's where I joined. They did some field tests. On the basis of those results, they were looking at what to do with the company next with no employees. And when I joined, I was employee number one. I would say the state of the market at that time is very different than what it is today. I think state of the market at that time was still unsure about when and how much long duration storage is needed. The dialogue, I think, is very different today. I think at that time, there was, frankly, lithium mine deployments were still nascent, and they are still nascent. By the way, just as a matter of scale, just to put things in perspective, you know, if you look at the total gas storage in the US, it's like a few hundred terawatt hours. And last year was a record year for lithium deployments, and that was a few gigawatt hours. So we are one-tenth of 1% of 1% of the storage capacity just in gas that the entire energy system has been relying on to remain reliable. And so I think there's, there's a lot of ways to go. And then I think that relates to also that I don't think this is definitely not a time to pick a winner yet in long-duration storage, in storage in general. I think we need everybody to push incredibly hard to really fill just the size of the need that the grid is demanding for, for it to remain reliable as we do this transition.
0: So, what were the biggest priorities of the company in 2017 when you joined?
1: So, in 2017, priority number one as the CEO is to raise funds and build a team and start to kind of go after this thesis with a higher level of resources. And so, I joined 2017. The existing investors extended yet another kind of seed round to the company. We're extremely thankful for that. That funded the company through a Series A raise. We raised our Series A round with two lead investors, Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Evoke Innovations, both well-known entities in the space, and they've been just incredible sponsors of the company ever since. Since that Series A, we've also won around $10 million of government contracts, and subsequently had another private financing round. But really, since 2017, for the first year, it was raise the funds, build the team, and we did that. That took about a year and a half. And then really since kind of middle of 2018, late 2018 until now, we've been in what I would call the exploration phase of this journey, right? So if you look at any kind of subsurface resource development play, there's usually three phases. Exploration, right? In oil and gas sense, is there oil? So for us, is there this kind of geologic pressure attribute that we are leveraging as a platform for storage? What comes next becomes appraisal and development, which is more the commercial scale implementation of the technology and the rollout of these facilities. So even though we have this kind of underlying patent position over the technology of how to do this type of energy storage, we've taken a view from the very early days that for us to be successful, for us to have the impact that we're looking for, it's probably not do a model and license it out from year one. This is we got to go into the field ourselves and we got to demonstrate that this can work. And not only that it can work technically, but it also can work with the stakeholder environment around it. Are the landowners okay with this on their site? Do the leases add up? Are the regulators okay with us doing this? And so we spent a lot of the time in the past few years really working on that. So to kind of go back to your question, early days though, the first kind of year and a bit of my time at QuidNet was just raise the funds so we have the resources to do something and build a team. And we had a very, very small team in the early days doing some incredible stuff. Crazy stuff actually in retrospect. Now I think you know when we think back to what we were trying to do with the resources that we had.
0: There's a bunch of things you mentioned there. You mentioned the the tech itself so that when there is this environment of geological pressure that you know what to do with it. You mentioned that that environment needs to be in enough places. So as you said the the exploration phase and then you also mentioned the stakeholders that when you find it and you know what to do with it that there aren't any unintended consequences or things or not in my backyard types or otherwise that will make it not possible politically or from a permitting standpoint or things like that for you to do what you do. Uh, So which of those things do you feel like are proved out now and then which are the things that might be in process or might be on the come at some point down the road?
1: Yeah. So we're coming to the end of our exploration process today. And so where we did this is we intentionally took a very wide spread of geologic and regulatory contexts and settings to do this. To show I mean, our current investors, we want to know, our current investors want to know, prospective investors want to know, can this be done in multiple places? And we always have believed that because we think that we are probably the least picky of rocks when it comes to subsurface resource development, but we needed to prove that in the field. So we went to Texas, Ohio, New York, and Alberta as a start. And for each of those places, it's exactly the things you just talked about. It's validating the ROC can work, and I'll talk a bit about what that entails. Validating the regulatory context for deploying these assets, working with the local communities. As you can imagine, the spread between doing this in Texas versus doing this in New York is very, very different. And setting up that framework for commercial deployment in those places. I think we feel very good about validating... That the resource is there, so we've seen storage pressures in like flat, flat prairie. That's the equivalent to one to two thousand feet of mountains. You know, equivalent to having a one to two thousand foot tall mountain there to do pumped hydro. And so these are places in the country that never had that access to that kind of capability. We've been able to validate round trip efficiencies of the storage reservoirs as we push water in and out of them. We've been able to validate water quality, right, of the water as it cycled through the system. And on the basis of all those, establish the parameters and the models to say, hey, we've seen it at this scale. For it to scale up, this is what it's gonna take. This is the volume that it'll take. This is the type of engineering we need to do in the subsurface and above ground for, at, for that to scale up. So really the past two, three years has been focused on establishing and ground truthing those things. We feel very good about, I'm very proud of, I say, our team for how we've been engaging with the regulators and the local community. I think we took a very measured approach right? Very transparent approach. As you can imagine, places like New York have not had a simple history with people drilling underneath the ground. And the communities are naturally going to be curious about what exactly we're doing. So we go in, we've had meetings with the county, we've had meetings with the local town board, we've had meetings with concerned citizens to say, hey, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is how the process works, right? We pump water into the subsurface, it's water. Here's the, you know, when we use additives, this is the list of additives, it's clay, it's, 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 kind of these gels that we use to seal the rock, I think we've established a pretty good foothold. But that's going to be something that we need to work on as we get into new parts of the country, right? So as we go into other states, looking at working with different kind of districts of the EPA, different local state level regulators. So we have a pretty good playbook that we can build off of from the work that we've done over the last two to three years.
0: So what are the key priorities, say, over the next 12 months?
1: Over the next 12 months, kind of our focus is threefold. One is where we've already made a home for ourselves, we want to expand. We want to do bigger wells. We want to take larger lease positions and really prepare for these large grid scale deployments. We want to extend ourselves into markets where we're getting some really interesting polls. An obvious place that we're not at today is California. And there are some other ones where we're seeing kind of local customers pulling us and say, hey, what, what about our current setup that we've just previously had not had the bandwidth to address? And then the other piece is to kind of prioritize the partnership opportunities that we have in the funnel and really crystallize on one or two regional partnerships to help us accelerate kind of those two prior goals. i would say that is the focus for the next, call it 12 months for the company.
0: Who are you selling to? What types of companies? Yeah,
1: it's a good question. And I wish the answer is simple, but power market is just incredibly complex. And depending on the region you go to, the construct of the market is very different. So I'll give you a couple examples. In some cases, we'll be working with the local utility and we will just be providing almost like a storage warehouse contract. It's almost like a commercial real estate contract. You just rent the space. And this space happens to be instead of storing boxes, you can store electrons in there. We're on the hook to make sure it works. You do whatever you want with it and you pay us a fee. That, that's one model. There's other instances where it's almost providing kind of a differentiated capability to an existing wind or solar farm. And we have a couple of folks that we're working with on that, both outside the country as well as, as within. And then the third is, you can imagine, it's kind of a variant of the second, which is, interestingly enough, there are folks who have a lot of land who may be already doing something for that land, such as oil and gas companies, for whom it's a very natural fit to leverage that footprint to also kind of incubate and develop a storage asset. Sometimes not too intuitive to think about it. But we actually have a few different conversations with oil and gas companies where on their existing footprint, especially if for a footprint that's reaching kind of end of life, there's more things that we can do with that land. And there's more things we can do with the existing infrastructure that they've built, whether it's the power infrastructure or even just the roadways that they've built or the water infrastructure that they've built. There are ways to essentially give it a second life and repurpose to do something for grid-scale storage. And so it's a variety of folks that's in the funnel that's in our pipeline today. And what we are observing of the market is that there's likely going to be a few different structures, and a few different ways of transacting storage solutions into the market.
0: So what types of alternatives are you competing against? And then what is the value proposition that you're presenting when you're talking to potential customers?
1: Yeah. So when we talk to potential customers, the alternatives, I mean, there's lithium ion, there's from hydro storage, and then there's a cohort of emerging long duration storage companies that all kind of have their views on where the market is and what the cost is. And I think at the end of the day, our value proposition is that we are a long duration storage company. We are built on very mature supply chain. So a lot of the underlying components, what it takes to do this is already established and well known with the operating track record. And when we piece it all together, we have a cost position that's very differentiated relative to the competitive set, certainly relative to lithium ion, relative to pumped hydro. But we also believe that we have the lowest cost structure relative to, I would say, the emerging, emerging asset classes as well. And a lot of that is owed to the supply chain already being there and that scale and just the fundamental physics that's involved in our system.
0: And what types of objections come up? And is it different objections from different types of customers or do they tend to be pretty consistent across?
1: You know, there's a couple of categories. There's always a just how does it work category of really that works kind of thing. And the reason is it makes a lot of intuitive sense for people to compress air and store energy in the form of compressed gas. But when you think about a liquid, when you think about water, you don't really think that water compresses. And you're right. The energy is actually not stored in the compression of the water. Where the energy is stored is actually in very, very slight bending of the earth. So we are storing energy in the elasticity of the rock, and that takes a while for us to get people over the hump. I mean, since joining the company, I have learned a lot more about rocks than I ever thought there was to know about rocks. And one of the coolest things I've learned is that the Earth on a daily basis is actually flexing because of the moon rotates around the Earth. As the Earth rotates around the sun, it actually causes the physical Earth, the solid parts of the earth to actually deform ever so slightly so that elasticity of the rock is how we're storing the energy and that takes some time to just help a lot of these folks at utilities and and ips and when i understand just the fundamental physics of how it works once they get past that then it's like okay all right so that's the attribute and we're doing pumped hydro i get it okay so that that tends to be the first set of conversations that we go through and then the second one and i think that one is is common across the rest of the cohort, anytime you're trying to bring a new hard tech technology to market is, all right, what's your plan for getting this from where you are today to A, at scale and B, financeable? And everyone is thinking about how to do that. And, and I think one of the things that we point to is that a lot of times what it takes to go from where we are today to at scale and bankable is how many reps do you do? How many iterations have you done? And how long have they been operating? And one of the nice features about Quitnet being modular as it is is that it's actually relatively low cost for us to go through learning cycles. It's very important that essentially, you know, for some technologies, one shot on goal will take 80 to hundred million dollars. And then you learn from that and then you get on to the next one. For us, 80 to hundred million dollars would involve tens of wells for us. And so the pace of learning is very different. I think that is frankly something that I really liked when I saw the company, because it's just, we have to be practical the first ones are not going to be easy and they're not going to be trouble-free. And so it's just how fast can you learn and what's the cost to learn.
0: And from where you sit today, and I know this is a different answer than maybe, you know, 2017 when you started, but what are the biggest risk areas? If this didn't work and you're sitting 10 years from now looking backwards, why not?
1: I think that there are... Two risk areas that come to mind. One risk area is if you think about now just the technology in the ORL system, right? This is a you got a surface pond, you got a pump and a turbine house, you have a well, and you have this storage lens. We call the storage kind of this this layer of high pressure water between two layers of rock. 95% of that system, the pond, the pump and turbine, the well, very well known. And I have zero questions in my mind that we will be able to do what it takes for those things to work and work at the cost levels. I think where the novelty is, is how big can you get this lens? How much power can you get this lens to store and how much power can you get this lens to output at? And a lot of that has to do with the geometry of the lens, how the water flows in and out and how you manipulate that geometry. And so that for us is what we've been working on and we've developed a lot of IP around doing that in a way that can bring things to commercial. That is for us, kind of the main uncertainty, it has been since earliest early in the company, we've taken a lot of that uncertainty off the table. But as we try to go through the scale-up phase, we will need to work through things. And I think that's going to be the one where, you know, as I think about what does it take to be successful, and inversely, what is going to be the thing that keeps others from replicating, it's that. It's our ability to engineer this lens for it to get to higher and higher flow rates and storage volumes. That's one. And that's something that's very much in our control. The one that's I think a bit more common across the rest of the industry is that at least historically, and I'm thinking, I'm saying that in the context of wind and solar, the deployment of that technology set has worked on the back of fixed price, long-term PPAs that can bring in project finance. And that capital structure was the way that that industry can scale or scaled thus far. It's not entirely clear how, I mean, for example, you're not seeing... 10-hour storage tolling agreements flying off left and right across the industry. You're seeing some, we're seeing some, but it's not at the gigawatt scale. And so how exactly does the power market reform its revenue streams to truly reflect the value of storage that it hasn't had to pay for, you know, for the last hundred years because it's always happened upstream? I think that is something that a lot of us in the industry are focused on, working together on. And I think that's gonna be something that's very important to do to kind of catalyze the large-scale commercial implementation of these technologies.
0: So I never really had the context, but I know when I've looked at storage in the past, sometimes I hear people say things like there's no business model for storage. Is that what they're referencing? The fact that it happened upstream before so that customers aren't used to paying for it?
1: I think that's what they're referencing. I think when you do a solar plant, you can say, hey, I'm producing X megawatt hours a year. Here's the price of energy in those hours. And the math is fairly straightforward. For storage, it's, well, I'm providing capacity services. I'm doing a little bit of arbitrage. I'm also providing some of these other kind of spinning reserve capacity services. It's not clear. And it varies so much from region to region. And ERCOT's different than Kaiso, Kaiso's different than Alberta. And I would say every grid has their own flavor of it. And so I think that lack of, I would presume that that's what they're pointing at. And certainly that's what, when I was in the industry and when we look at the market today, that's the thing that we're looking at. And how do we kind of do this in a coordinated way so that we can form a clear, ideally simple set of uh, market structures for storage? What I should say is that it's, it doesn't mean people aren't doing something about it today. There are tolling agreements being written today. We are, again, we are working on some of these. So people are willing to take a forward view on what the market's going to look like. And on the basis of that, write an agreement. They'll say, look, I think the value, I can base, you know, even if the market products aren't perfect, I can get a feel for what the value of storage should be in this market, and on the basis of that, I'm willing to take a view. And so, some utilities that are vertically integrated, especially, can take that view and 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 essentially catalyze these markets for or catalyze kind of the transaction structure for long duration storage.
0: Uh huh. And one thing I'm curious about is, I mean, you you always hear that you don't want to be, and I'm not talking about in storage. I'm talking about in other unrelated category. just that you don't want to be a technology in search of a market to apply it, that you want to know that the thing you're building is what customers want. How do you balance in something like this, where you need to go through this exploration phase, as you mentioned, and make sure that the technology does what it says it can do and make sure it can scale and make sure that from a permitting standpoint, you'll be allowed. How do you balance the kind of internal focus of getting it ready versus making sure that the customer demand is there, given how complicated it is to get it ready in the first place?
1: Yeah, yeah. You got to do both. I think anything in clean tech, you got to do both because it's just a slow-moving machine. And if you do build it and then get the market, you can't do it that way. You got to get both going at the same time, if nothing else, because of the lead times and what it takes for both of those to work, right, to get the market set up and to have the technology ready. I think the way that we approach it today is to be willing to take fundamentals-driven bets and place those bets. You know, we are in different parts of the country as a result of those bets being made, right? So we have a fundamentals underlying market view on why Texas is a really interesting place for storage. And I think it's starting to already show in the underlying market revenues for storage. While those products may not be perfect, you're really seeing the revenues for storage or this revenue stack for storage in Texas go through the roof. We took a fundamentals view in New York. That's a slightly different market. That's a market where the state is driving a lot of emphasis and momentum into the transition with its very aggressive targets. But nevertheless, we took kind of a fundamentalist view there. We took a fundamentalist view in Alberta, where there is a high renewables-rich region in the southeast. The grid is not exactly sized to get all that transmitted to its load centers. And we think there are benefits to decongesting the grid in that, in that portion of the province to get more and more renewables to the rest of the, the province. And then Ohio, there's a tremendous amount of coal plants that are undergoing retirement or planned retirement in the Ohio River Valley area. And so our idea is to, say, preemptively explore and develop that geology so that when the time comes, we're essentially right there. So I think it's actually not that dissimilar from what the wind and the solar guys have done for the past multiple decades is that you, have just, you just take underlying fundamentals view on the market And then you do the best to de-risk it. You do the best to get the best voices in there to help you think through that. And then you make some bets. And ideally, you stage gate those bets so that you manage your exposure over time as you try to take some of those risks off the table.
0: And when I asked you about the biggest risks, it sounded like they were internally focused, that the technology needs to do what it's set out to do and it needs to be able to do it at scale and, of course, cost-effectively as well. I mean, that's a risk that it seems like largely you can control. What about the ones that you can't control? What are the blockers outside of the scope of your control, if any, that are material that keep you up at night as you look towards the future?
1: I think that there are, I guess it falls into two categories, one of which I already touched on, which is just the maturation of the market and the revenue mechanisms for storage. I think there is, There's one other one, which is in light of that, in light of the market evolution and the fact that we are still, you know, we are ourselves developing the company and growing the company. You know, it's very easy for investors to look at a market and a thesis and says, if I invest X, here's the revenue stream, here's how I'm going to get paid, and this is my investment thesis. I think that when you have the market revenue streams not yet, fully fleshed out, it's actually quite tricky to then try to catalyze investment into that space. And so the other thing that is, I would say, out of our certainly out of our control, but we are seeing a lot of folks around us work really hard on, is finding ways to put capital against companies like ours to bring the technology and bring the product to full commercial scale as the market's evolving. Because it just takes reps. It just takes shots on goals for people to iterate, to get to a point where you have a highly you know, mature product that can be counted on on demand on the grid. And you kind of can't, you know, to the point of how do you do things in parallel versus in series? I don't think we can wait. I think we got to do both. And so things like what Breakthrough Energy is doing with the catalyst program, very exciting. I think what's happening at the DOE in terms of catalyzing demonstration projects, very exciting. So I think there's a lot of people working on things like that. And I think that's incredibly important because we need to have all these technologies Go through that field hardening process. And that field hardening process is it's not trivial, it's painful. It takes time, it takes energy, and it takes a lot of reps for folks and solutions to get there. And we need, I think, capital that's ready to help these companies go through that journey while the demand side gets matured.
0: And do you have any thoughts on the right sources of that capital? Uh, I mean, if you take traditional venture capital, for example, one of the knocks on Venture capital is not so much that the technologies that were backed in the first wave shouldn't have been backed, but that venture was in some cases trying to do jobs that were better served by different types of capital than venture was meant for. So, how do you think about that? Do you think that? venture capital has a role in doing this kind of investing, or do you think that it should come from other places? And if other places, is it asset classes that already exist, or is it a different kind of asset class that should emerge?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And my view on this, based on my experience in the sector, is that there definitely is a role for venture to play because you always need to form the team. And there's always some upfront de-risking you need to do to validate that this is a journey that's worth going on. And that's a great place for venture to play. And then I, I would say, and you're seeing this too, with venture, there's such a wide range, especially nowadays on what is venture, what isn't venture. But I think that that is a no-brainer place for venture. I think that you are probably seeing a cohort like ours who are coming up to and staring down this precipice of, okay, we got to build some large commercial scale stuff. And it's not going to be cheap. Different people have different ticket sizes, but in general, it's not going to be cheap and it's not going to be risk-free. And I think a lot of us are scratching our heads figuring out what are ways to cross that chasm. And I think there are a few pathways that I see. The obvious ones are you know, where the DOE, where government can play a role. Absolutely, we should be working with them to play a role. I think that there's another, what I would characterize as applicable to potentially a, a decent subset of the clean energy initiatives today is step aside for a second, biotech, right? Phase one, phase two, phase three, catalyze different investments. And sometimes you can go public even at earlier phases because there's just this rhythm to it. You, you don't see that in clean tech. Well, I would argue that you actually do see that in a subset of clean tech because the oil and gas industry, though we don't think about it, I would view them as actually very aggressive venture bet makers when it comes to upstream oil and gas development. And they have a rhythm to it exploration, appraisal, development, kind of feels like phase one, phase two, phase three. And so to the extent that we can bring more of those investment professionals who have had experience regimenting the risk into those buckets and are able to evaluate the risk across those ranges and kind of form a standardized process around the equivalent exploration phase, appraisal phase, and development phase. Again, for us, there is actually that analogy because we're subsurface resources. I would argue for geothermal, there's that analogy. For carbon capture and storage, there is that analogy. For some of the other stuff, it's a little bit trickier. But I do think that the kind of resource development, private equity cohort actually has done a really interesting job of setting up a framework for channeling investments to help companies get through that scale-up process. I think that's a really interesting pool, And I'd be excited, and we're having a lot of discussions with those folks, and I'd be excited for them to jump into the fight, so to speak, and deploy their capital into a lot of these growth sectors that are happening when you think about the space i think you can't help but then touch on what's happening in the stack stack world i think that to the extent that we can maintain as a cohort a really productive relationship with the public markets and a responsible one i think that's a great way to capitalize the journey for some folks and then the last i would say is that i mean again i go back to breakthrough energy catalyst i love kind of the underlying thesis behind that program and this is all about deploying capital to get these early projects off the ground and start going through those learning curves and drive the cost down and drive up kind of reliability and performance of these technologies While before the market's truly you know, fully fleshed out in terms of how the underlying contracts are going to look. I think that form of capital is going to make some meaningful dents in some of these technologies in terms of carrying them through. So a wide array. To go back, I think VC is there's a role to incept and to start these things. And then once people try to cross the chasm of, of in the field commercial deployments, I think you're seeing a lot of us trying to get really creative.
0: So we're more than 45 minutes in. One topic that hasn't come up at all is just what motivates you. Why do you do the work that you do?
1: I have since a very early age been fascinated with the concept of finite resources. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that so I grew up in China My grandparents, you know, parents were born, I think, just after the Cultural Revolution. My grandparents lived through the Cultural Revolution. So they'd been through times where there was just not abundant. You know, it was not trivial that there was going to be food on the table. And so since a very young age, this concept that resources are finite had always bugged me and had always been something that formed kind of a, a core part of my values. And so... A lot of my life has been driven by that. A lot of my life has been driven by or been involved in resources one way or the other. And when I was in oil and gas, actually, the primary, one of the reasons that drove me out of oil and gas was, well, that in a way was a finite resource, which a lot of people say, well, now it's going to be here for a long time. And yes, there's a lot of it still. But in the grand scheme of things, there is a limited amount of that. In the subsurface, again, I was at a young age, and so I wanted things to last forever. And so that really, in the early days, was what drove me towards kind of sustainable resource development, finding ways to... A latch ourselves onto underlying energy systems that weren't finite, or at least in the grand scheme were quite infinite. And that's what drove me to the work that I do today. I think what I do now, and one of the core motivators, especially since I joined Quinnet, is I grew up in oil and gas. And a lot of my friends in oil and gas are starting their careers at a time when it's actually pretty scary. You know, set aside the oil and gas is good, oil and gas is bad discussion, just from a personal perspective, right, for me, for a lot of these friends that I have, to be at the beginning of your career, having invested a good chunk of your life in a particular skill set in an industry that is facing a lot of opposition, in an industry that is arguably going to be in, you know, probably not in the upward trajectory, is really difficult. And so the thing that really motivates me now, especially in my role at QuidNet, is doing a good job of setting up a vehicle that can channel some of those skill sets into a growth sector. In that case, for us, it's laundromatious storage in the subsurface that uses the same geological skill sets, the same kind of drilling, project management, process facilities, skill sets that a lot of folks that I've grown up with have, but it may, may not be as straightforward in terms of how they continue to leverage that skill set for their future.
0: Yeah, I mean, it almost sounds like you're motivated by sustainability, but just in a different way than it's often meant in the climate world, where it's less about emissions and temperatures and extreme weather events and flooding and wildfires and things like that and it's more about stability longevity which people mean when they talk about in the planetary context but what i'm hearing from you is that you mean it more in the context of you and your career others in their careers like hitching your wagon to to a growing sector that's in it for the long term and so oil and gas outside of the harm it's doing from a Collective goods standpoint is just on borrowed time, if you will. That sounds like that's yeah. a big piece and, of what's and, and To, you. to yeah.
1: your point, right? There's, uh, you know, I started in the early days of resources finite, and I think you can think of a lot of things in that lens, right? And so the, the climate capacity to take on additional emissions is also, in a way, a resource that we're steadily chewing away on. And so the concept of can we fundamentally and leveraging technology to enable a different energy supply system that takes away some of those constraints is a lot of what personally drives me.
0: So if you could wave your magic wand and change one thing outside of the scope of your control that would most accelerate the progress of long-duration storage and QuidNet specifically, what would you change and how would you change it?
1: In a way, I think a lot of this is it's two things, and I oftentimes go back to kind of the market analogy, right? It's demand side and supply side. I think on demand side, I would love to see market reform accelerated and for there to be just a very clear and very straightforward way to articulate how storage is going to transact and it's going to get valued. On top of that, then a lot of these transaction structures can be formed, and that can't happen sooner. And I think a lot of people are working on that. DOE is working on that. And I think a lot of industry groups are working with the wholesale market operators on exactly that topic. I think that then there is, on the supply side, I think the cohort of technologies, whether it's just us or others, need to get to commercial scale yesterday. Because there's just so much ahead of us. There's, you get the first one built, you get the first ones built, you improve on those ones. It takes a lot of time to introduce a hard asset product into the electricity markets, And so we can't slow down. And so to the extent that certainly for us, because of the supply chain already being there, because of kind of what we've done thus far in terms of in terms of our work in the field, we're ready to kind of hit the gas. And so to the extent that capital continues to come into this space and kind of accelerate the development of these technologies, these companies, I think that's a great thing as well. And again, I think that is happening today. I think more of it can continue to happen. There's a tremendous amount of capital out there that's looking for returns and I think this is a great space for it.
0: Joe, where do you need help? If for anyone listening that's intrigued by what you're up to, yeah, where do you need help and who do you want to hear from, if anyone?
1: Yeah, so I'll say for folks in the utilities, IPP trade, in the power space, trying to figure out storage, we are too. And we love to share notes and learn from how you guys are seeing and, and it's really share our perspectives. I think for those kind of experienced project developers in the solar and wind space who are looking to and to take part in crafting our development playbook of how we scale up our assets into the field, how we do leasing, how we do permitting, how we do interconnection. For folks who find interest in that, we'd love to hear from you. I think that's going to be a core part of our journey going forward. And just anybody else who listened to this and thinks this is remotely interesting and what we do is remotely interesting, please don't hesitate to reach out.
0: Anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners?
1: One of the things that really struck me when I looked at different aspects of quinnets business was if you go back to 2015, kind of height of the shale boom, the United States drilled about 20,000 wells that year, thereabout, okay? Five years later, COVID and just reduction in demand and all that, we are sitting at drilling about 10,000 wells a year. So that supply chain has spare capacity for, let's call it just 10,000 wells a year. That's just not drilling today. If you drill 10,000 storage wells, like Quinnet storage wells a year, I mean, that's tens of gigawatts, a year. You would fundamentally transform entire regional power grids within a matter of years. And so that's something that really at least helped me put things in perspective in terms of just the scale and the potential for impact that QuidNet technology could have. I think we're doing everything we can to try to bring that impact forward as, as fast as we can. And we certainly would love any help that people are looking to lend, both in terms of their time, their advice, their insights uh, along our journey.
0: Amazing. Well, gosh, I can't thank you enough for making the time to come on the show. I feel like every time I sit down for a session like this, I get a little less dumb about long duration storage. So maybe another 500 or a thousand of these and I might actually know a bit about what I'm talking about. But this was awesome. Thank you, Joe. And best of luck to you and the QuidNet team. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having us. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode. Or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you.